Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete Podcast. Today, I'm here with Thomas Riccio, Professor of Performance and Aesthetics at University of Texas, Dallas, uh, the Artistic Director of Dead White Zombies, artist, writer, director. Welcome, Thomas. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Right, today, I, I think this should be a great episode. I'm looking forward to talking about uh, Alaska Zombies, uh, <laughs> post-disciplinary performance, you know, Holy Bone, one of the projects you're working on, and and maybe a little bit about robots. We'll see how we okay. go. Okay, <laughs> all right, good. No. So what? where I wanted to, to, to start was maybe just for you, you've done so much. How do you how do you kind of summarize that onto a business card? What do you say when people ask you what you do at parties or, or whatever? Um, I'm just a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I'm usually pretty um, humble about what I've done. It's just opportunities have been given to me. So I'm in dialogue with a, a greater reality of the world. So I'm just kind of, I'm here for 80, 90 years, and I'm just kind of channeling whatever uh, I need to channel. That's kind of how I see it. So wherever it takes me. So it's kind of a, I'm not in the titles. In fact, actually, I don't call myself artistic director of the Dead White Zombies. I call myself the, the Poopadu, uh, which basically is, it's a little snarky, but it also means nothing because I'm, I'm, I'm apprehensive about uh, some people in theater calling themselves like, executive producing artistic director and it's like oh geez so for me it's like i'd much rather you know you you you, you can interpret as you will <laughs> let's put it that way there's been an arms war in titles hasn't there everybody's titles have just escalated <laughs> and got longer and and, and more impressive uh, i wanted to ask you about the poopadoo since we've gone there now was that about the song did that come out yeah the the song of poopadoo oh maybe yeah song? it just yeah uh and and, and and i just wanted something a bit absurd and also the name dead white zombies basically dictates that we don't do traditional things okay. and poopadu is like something untraditional is expected of me okay. uh, and something maybe absurd and so in a sense naming is a prophecy yeah uh, and for me also too when i've worked with uh spirit people throughout the world generally they don't call themselves anything mm -hmm. their name is you know John or Jose or whatever, or Izbekov. Uh, they don't claim to be anything. It's their actions speak for themselves. So I kind of, maybe that ethos is what I follow. Um, and I have a card for the university because I need to have it, but otherwise yeah. that's it. Yeah, there's something about being being involved. The, the folks that are really doing the business and know what they're about don't need a, a title or, or an impressive um, you know, business card necessarily perhaps. The, the Poopadoo, I think there's a line in the song, which is a Mardi Gras favorite, right. uh, which is, I won't stop trying till I create disturbance in your mind. <laughs> I can't believe that's a coincidence. Come on, come on, Thomas, please. Is that serendipity or is well, that just yeah, a, a backstory? I'm familiar with the song, yeah, so yeah. Maybe, maybe subconsciously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Let's let me just, tell you about the name Dead White Zombies. Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, I was driving to a, a playwrights conference and I was listening in the car to some whatever, some some CD, and it occurred to me, because well, I was thinking about what should I name this company? Uh, and it needs a name, and it needs a name that will you know, kind of predict what we do. And <clears throat> I was considering the fact that in a way, well, what I was feeling was that I'm part of a culture that which I feel is fading, is dead, and it's primarily driven by 
Northern European or European uh, Caucasian white um, racial identity. So it's dead in mm-hmm. the sense it's white, but <clears throat> it's zombies, meaning they're still around somehow walking. So it's in a sense I'm, I'm uh, I embody my my life embodies. Mm-hmm. My culture embodies this culture that is essentially dead, but somehow uh, walking around still. And so, w- and that's our predicament. We're kind of like in an old phase, yet the new phase hasn't taken over yet. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the work that we do deals with that kind of transitional moment. Mm-hmm. I, I've got I've got some trepidation now about wanting to go back to how you got into performance now because. You're such an evolved guy that or is history, uh, does it mean anything anymore? Or have you, or is that all just become assimilated into who you are today? Um, yeah, history is important. I actually read a lot of history. I'm really in, intrigued by it. But I'm <clears throat> intrigued with alternative histories as well. I would much rather read uh, Howard Zinn. Uh, and he was, uh, I, I took his class when I was a student at Boston University than, let's say, a more traditional uh, uh, history. So I'm interested in varieties of interpretation. Uh, for me, there are multiple truths. So it's just, and if you approach life like that and history like that, maybe it's healthier. Uh, and, and that gives me my perspective. So it's like, it's, it's always kind of turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a prism is always turning and it's always like light from different colors coming from different directions. And that's how I look at history. So how do you? How did you get from the start, which I'm going to call the the pre-Alaska days, just because I think some of that um, certainly my readings about you have, have been pivotal in, in coming up with this view, this prismic view of the world. Is that one you've always held, or is that something that's developed through your immersion in performance and, and indigenous cultures and something? Oh, I have no idea where I came from. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, I had gr- my my dad's passed away, but my mom and dad were really great parents. And they were very um, liberal, uh, politically, uh, culturally, socially, uh, never forceful, and always wanted us to do what we wanted to do, how we wanted to do it, and also artistically inclined. But I also grew up in a, a, a little Italy in Cleveland, which was very kind of old school, which has this one, one foot in the tradition of like an older era. And so I was kind of, and then I went to a technical high school, which was really pragmatic. So maybe those forces somehow constellated to create this multiplicity of of views, Mm -hmm. uh, of directions, this liberalness, this tradition, and then this real practical functionalism. Um, And then having, uh, being a middle child maybe, that kind of uh, mediator sensibility. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and then just maybe a curiosity and dissatisfaction with uh, kind of a provincial way of being, which, you know, Cleveland is a great city, but it's very provincial mm-hmm. uh, and a dying city. Uh, when I was there growing up uh, late 60s and 70s, very much, uh, uh, you know, the Rust Belt and just watching it decline in population and racial violence and, and, and riots, et cetera. So it was a real tumultuous era. And all those things maybe collaborated to create maybe an understanding, sensitivity, but also multiple awareness of different points of view. So maybe the origin, I would say, is, is from that somehow. So, <clears throat> so that, that's been the catalyst, the, but partially the environment and the time that you, you'd grown up in. What, what role did, did education play in that in terms of literature and then looking at, at theatre and theatre education? Was that formative in that? Was that a, a kind of a backbone to, to soak up this or interpret this culture or was it um, unrelated? You know, 
I was 18 and I was a merchant seaman on the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And I was working on ore boats mm -hmm. because a cousin was able to get me on uh, the ore boats. Um, and uh, there was a, a man who had retired as a professor and he was a professor of English and Irish literature. And so it was a really a strange uh, uh, coincidence that he just, whatever, for whatever reason he, he saw in me, he said, you're too good for this. Um, because if you're on the lakes as a merchant seaman over a period of time, you basically, that's it, it's like an addiction, you get paid really well and all that. Uh, and he says, well, you should read these books. And so he gave me like Shakespeare, Yeats, you know, Casey, and, uh, and, and Singh, all the great you know, uh, poets and playwrights of, of Ireland, and then, um, and Nietzsche as well. And so that, and he was like my tutor. Mm -hmm. And then he said, you should go, uh, you should you not work this summer, you should work in Ireland, you should go to Ireland and study, and I'll, I'll write my friends. And so I wound up in Sligo, Ireland, which is the, the hometown of, uh, of Yeats, uh, William Butler Yeats, and um, I had instructors from University College of Dublin and Trinity and et cetera. And uh, because I had no, no college experience at that point, I, um, they took a liking to me because I was so kind of like, you know, I had a pocket full of money and uh, was like a big party guy, but I also had read the books and, yeah. and everyone else there was from like these really traditional schools. And so they just thought I was like some wild man, but they took a liking to me because I was so abnormal. And then that was kind of like the, the beginning of my integrating who I was and bridging into something very different. Bridging into something different in terms of who you were or bridging into the different, into the entry point into you know, literature, study, and, and education. Yeah, it, it, it's, for me, they're all interwoven, mm -hmm. uh, the self and, and study. I don't really make a, a distinct separation. My academic scholarly life and my artistic life and personal life are all intertwined and uh, my girlfriends will say that that's the detriment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't show, make distinctions. <laughs> on a show that, that deals with work-life balance, we might come back with that a, yeah. little, a bit later on uh, or revisit as, as, as we see fit. So, um, okay, so you'd, you'd made an entry point into to formal education and gone through that process and, and um, worked in, in theater f for a bit. Yeah, I was a lit major and I went to, as an undergrad, the Cleveland State because um, a local commuter university. And um, there was a, a man who was tr uh, wanted to do adaptation of Tom Jones, 18th century novel. And I, and I was studying particularly 18th century novels, English novels. Uh, and so my professor uh, recommended me. And so I became an adapter along with this man, Joe Gary. And um, we adapted Tom Jones, which became this big hit uh, musical with the harpsichordist, well-known harpsichordist, you know, playing on stage and all that stuff. And it, it just wouldn't die. It, it, it was revived a few times. And so that that's how I kind of caught the bug with theater. Up to that point, maybe I'd seen three plays mm. in high school, like Guys and Dolls and stuff like that. But that's about it. And I really didn't have an interest uh, in it. But that was like maybe uh, entry into to performance. Okay, it, it, and and another story about um, influential people in your lives that have come come along at that that right time uh, uh, that you you've met that that have drawn you into <clears throat> other things. My, my life, I see, um, it's like uh, I'm reading a book on labyrinths now and symbolism of labyrinths, but it's a it's a apt metaphor and symbol that I kind of see. It's like a, a a labyrinth that we're always uh, traveling this journey. Uh, rather than a straight line. 
and along the journey, you find things that are unexpected. Uh, and you have to be aware that, in a sense, you're walking through a, a larger narrative. And that's been like something that's intrigued me in the last five years, that essentially every day we walk through narratives and they're always speaking. And we kind of think narratives are something that's kind of like intellectually imposed, but in a sense, we they're, they're incarnate around us. And so when someone manifests, uh, in a sense, they're manifesting because that's the part of the story that they need to manifest in. Mm, mm. Uh, and, and if you look at it from the indigenous worldview, uh, in many indigenous cultures, when uh, you see what you need to see, when you need to see it, of course, and that's how the spirits speak, is when someone comes to you. Uh, so sometimes when I've met uh, uh, shamans and other healers, they'll look at me, they'll stare at me, kind of like wide-eyed. It's like, what they're doing is basically like, why is this guy here now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because nothing is coincidental. It's all, in a way, the spirits told or, or, or told me to come here or somehow directed me to be there. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's how, you know, they kind of view things. So I look at people I meet, like yourself, as uh, appropriate to this moment in my life. You know, you needed to meet me, I needed to meet you. And of all the uh, possibilities throughout history and, and uh, since the, the, the origins of our species, how the hell did we wind up, you know, in an office in Dallas, Texas on this day talking? You know, I mean, that's, is that coincidence? Well, we can logically say, you know, genetics or culture or history, or is it something else that we need to meet now? Well, since you've asked the question, <laughs> um, one reason that we're speaking probably is, so how did I find out about um, dead white zombies? That, that's my, my path into to you. And uh, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, cycling at White Rock Lake. And one morning I was cycling around the lake and there was, uh, I parked my bike and, and just next to the, the, the bathroom there, there was a, a car with a bumper sticker, dead white zombies. Uh -huh. uh, on it and, and I, I that's right up my alley in terms of i, I love the intrigue <laughs> of a bumper sticker and, and it's, it's it's it was a great idea i had to find out what it was you know the name was great and, and it kind of it, it compelled me to to find out uh more about what it was about oh, and attend one of the, the performances dp 92 oh no uh, and that's kind of led me on to to you so that was the answer. So a bumper sticker. Oh, good. <laughs> there, there, uh, is it serendipity or a bumper sticker, or are they one and the same? They're one and the same. Some people think we're a motorcycle group, and I mean, or like some occult group or whatever. It's like the interpretations are crazy, or it, a rock group, or like a punk rock group. But that's isn't that great, you know that uh, that it's so open ended here. Um, mm -hmm. And it invites speculation and, and kind of wonder and intrigue. So, so I want to get on to you know um, and. Given we've just talked about uh, you know labyrinths and and uh, and meandering, I would like to apply my logical management consulting sure, <laughs> brain to get us back on a straight line. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I'll work, my, work against <laughs> And you'll that. do your best to just do that. Okay, folks, this is what we're up for for the next uh, you know thirty minutes or forty minutes or so. Okay, so I want to talk about Alaska, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a point that you've mentioned previously in other interviews as being a formative or a turning point or, or certainly one that's worth, worth talking about, mm -hmm. you know, getting from um, your start in theater uh, to, to Alaska. Maybe tell us a little bit more about how that, that evolved. Well, uh, I, I, was, I was really smitten by, by theater um, and I was in, intrigued by it. And so I went on to grad school. Uh, and interestingly, my father 
basically disowned me when I went to grad school and wanted to study theater because mm -hmm. they didn't understand it at all. And I remember vividly at the Amtrak station in Cleveland, he gave me $40. You know, that was for my graduate school. And then about three months later, he wrote a long letter saying he understood why, because he had read something about how theater really communicated in a way that nothing else did as an art form. And he accepted that. Uh, and it was it was very important for me that you know he would come to the, those terms with that. So so for me it's the world is performed. I mean I, as I mentioned like we're walking through narratives and it's a performed narrative. Uh, so I've kind of evolved from theater as uh, as a discipline where I went to school, which was fine, and more into looking at performance more uh, broadly. Because Dead White Zombies, I I I, I don't term them as a theater group though people call us that, we're basically a, a performance group, um, meaning we use theater as one of our vocabularies, but not only, the only vocabulary we use. I'll use, and I'm, I'm trained in drama therapy, I'll use uh, me, media expressions, digital expressions, video, whatever we need to use, dance, uh, religious, ritual, whatever you know, ex performative expressions that apply to respond. Um, and so that's, it's more broad and I think it's more appropriate and that's why I say post-disciplinary uh, or maybe polydisciplinary uh, is, is how I categorize our performance work is that it doesn't restrict itself to, to how and where we perform. We don't perform in theaters. We perform in, in site-specific spaces uh, and we shape the work to those spaces. And so we're looking at this space Many times they'll offer like people leave remnants of what we of from the, well, the manufacturing or whatever, and we'll look at it and we'll use it. Mm -hmm. And it's like and so it's like it's like a gift, an offering, like going to the forest. If I'm like an an Amazonian uh, Yamamoto tribe or something, it's like well, this fruit is here because you know the spirits or the gods left it, and so we have to figure out why they left it. So we do the same kind of like you know uh, approach to it. So that kind of transformed my work when and was in transformation when I went uh, to grad school and then to Chicago where I ran a theater company. I did regional theater, very dissatisfied. I went to New York first thinking I wanted to be a Broadway director and was totally uh, disenchanted with that idea. And so when I left Chicago, I went to, I took the job in Alaska. Um, I, I was there maybe a week or so when this man from Alaska Native Studies called and he said, can I see you? And I went to visit him not, not knowing what he wanted. And he said, we have this theater group, uh, Duma Theater, Alaska Native Performance Group, and the man who was running it left unexpectedly to take a job elsewhere. And he says, the budget is $100,000. And I go, I'll do it. I mean, I have no idea that Eskimos had theater. Then the next day I went back because I had driven up there. It takes 10 days to drive to Alaska. I mean, it's, a, it's far. And during those 10 days, I go to myself, whatever I do, I must do well whatever that I feel that, that that is. And so I went back the next day, and I go, you know, I know nothing about Alaska Native people or the, you know, their performance tradition, and I can't honestly do this, you know, uh, without feeling, you know, qualms about it. He goes, I understand, take the money for the next two years, use it as you will, because it's very expensive to travel in the state and meet everyone you need to meet, and then when you're ready, you do theater. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I traveled. It was really quite generous and, and insightful. You know, his name was Mike Gaffney. Um, and so I traveled the state, met with elders, interviewed them, because no one had done a comprehensive 
analysis and research project just focusing or primarily focusing on performance. And so I learned to dance, speak some Yupik Eskimo, uh, learn about various like uh, sea rituals performed, et cetera, and then invited people into the into Fairbanks and in, and hired like people to uh, and commission them to make drums, dance fans, et cetera, and then created a new Duma Theater performance group. And so at the was, university in Fairbanks, so yeah, how far away was the when you went to meet the um, the Eskimo? people in, in the, the from the where the university is is, it, is this it's a big state i mean in they say if you cut alaska, alaska in half it's uh, texas is the third largest state mm -hmm. it's just enormous um and it's expensive a lot of times to fly those six-seater planes four-seater planes is like five six hundred bucks to a village so and they're like probably like maybe 60 villages uh, um, Yupik and Yupak, uh, Eskimo, Athabascan Indian, and then down in uh, the southern area, you have the Clinket and the Haida and Simpson, et cetera. So it, it's, it gets really costly very quickly. And then when you go to some villages, they have no hotels formally, so people rent out their houses, uh, and they, they, they'll be 100, 150 bucks a night. This is like in the late 80s, early 90s. And then they don't have a bathroom. They have basically, they call them honey buckets, like a, a toilet seat on a, a five-gallon bucket. Uh, and so, and that's, that's 150 bucks a night. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, they heat sometimes moves works, you know. Um, and then sometimes you get stuck in a village because there's a freak snowstorm. So one time in the middle of the Bering Sea, there's an island called uh, St. Lawrence, uh, and I was stuck in Savunga. Uh, and it's... If you look on the map, there's a little jut that goes to the uh, to the east, and that that jut on the uh, the international dateline is for St. Lawrence Island, uh, and so I was stuck there, thinking I was being there for five days. I wound up there two weeks, mm. and so at the end of two weeks, I'm like a regular. I mean, uh, you know, at the dance hall and out hunting with them, and I didn't hunt, but I accompanied them. Uh, but yeah, and then there was just a freak snowstorm we, or was it serendipity that's what <laughs> I yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it was enjoyable right so, so the, this kind of situation which most people would get annoyed at it actually may have turned out for the better you know given that you got to fully immerse in there and, and have some yeah you, you can't be in a hurry when you work with indigenous groups and native peoples um you just yeah that you got it's slow travel wherever i go i just recognize that it is what it is and not to be impatient. Um, it, yeah, it comes out the way it comes out. And always I try to make my trips uh, buffered with like a, sometimes a month, two months when I do projects, it'll be three months at times, so. So, so would the, the folks from the traditional populations be attending the university or are they completely divorced from that kind of education system and, and culture that you'd find in the big cities? No. Um, because they're between cultures, so you'll get uh, students, native students from villages going to the university to um, working in wildlife management and biology. Um, I think at the University of Alaska, Fairbanks, there was maybe 16, 17% were Alaska native. Okay. Uh, so it was a large population. One woman who was a member of our company was a biology major, and she went on to work for her uh, corporation, her native corporation. And uh, she was a, a bridge working with elders because she spoke Inupak, uh and, and uh, with biologists. 
marine biologists, who for years uh, basically sidelined, marginalized uh, native elders' uh, um, information about you know spawning and, and, and various patterns of the salmon. And, but the thing is, they proved them biologically and scientifically correct. <laughs> and so then they started going, well, maybe we should listen to this native knowledge that's not mm-hmm. a metaphor, it's mm-hmm. actually a reality. So she was a bridge you know, in doing that. And that's happened throughout the world, people disavowing uh, native knowledge and now accepting it. Okay, so I definitely want to come, come to that. So there might be a representation of the, those populations at the university, but one of the, the things that you did after learning about tradi- you know, theatre and performance or performance mm-hmm. uh, was to stage production mm-hmm. back at Fairbanks. Right. To, to um, uh, I don't want to say showcase, but to, to present this. Well, it, it, was, it wasn't just before. The person who had run it before, the, the performance group, basically did Western theatre in uh, with costuming and with native people, so, um, it there was a, a, an important moment of revelation when uh, it was my first time I started teaching the course. I had the the actors circle up and warm up uh, just to kind of prepare the body. And you know when you warm up like in a traditional a theater class or acting class, you kind of like isolate body parts like the shoulders, the arms, the neck, and all that, and the legs. And then about halfway through, I go, "Stop! Well, this is wrong." I just you know I just can't kind of came out intuitively, and they looked at me like as if they had done something wrong. And I go, "No, you didn't do anything wrong. This is wrong. We're basically we're talking in a Alaska Native cultural context." But what we're doing is uh, uh, isolating and breaking down the body parts, which is really a Western paradigm of analysis, and then putting it back together. I go, whereas we're talking about a, ho- a holism, a holistic culture. And so we had to like find and kind of like question every aspect of how we created and how we produced work and how we envisioned work. And so what we did is we, we created what came to be known as the, the, the ritual warm-up. And that ritual warm-up was, was essentially drawn from this wonderful uh, vocabulary of actions and movements that are dance actions and ritual actions. And, and what, we, what I asked was people to bring in three movements for the next session, one that was personal, one that was cultural, and one that was spiritual. And so they brought it in, and then we shared it, and then we realized we had a vocabulary there. And then from that vocabulary, we created collectively uh, like as they would in a village, we created uh, like a half-hour warm-up and or ritual. So it was like when you're in a Western context and you're a last native person, you're basically surrounded by this this narrative, which is like, you know, uh, all it's 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 not native; it's Western. Mm-hmm. You know, university is a Western institution, and so what we, in a way we opened a window by this into their worldview, their tradition, and also we warmed the body. We accomplished mm-hmm. everything we needed to accomplish. We did it on the terms that were organic to uh, the culture itself. So it's like, in a way, it's a whole, in a thorough questioning of even the methodology and, and approaches, which is very different than a just a mindlessly adapting. I'm gonna like do Western, basically yeah. vocabulary, indigenous vocabulary in a Western context. So you kind of reacted to this um, once you found yourself on, on the ground there, if I can put it that way, uh, maybe going in, having been educated in Western traditional theater and, and then seeing, getting on the ground, seeing this with your own eyes in various parts of, of, 
Alaska and then kind of allowing this uh, this this insight to come in that then in fact the the mental model you might might have had wouldn't uh, would overly constrain the possibilities of what the performance could be absolutely and the expression of the facts yeah. evolved yeah it's like it's like in a way it's like you and I learning Russian to talk to each other right. it's like we have a language already mm-hmm. why can't we express in our own terms rather than learning another language so in a sense the form of Western theater is another language that they have to basically shoehorn into it. And, and, and you think about it like a theater, the theater you go to now, our connotation is we basically go in and we uh, sit in the, the, the audience sits in the dark theater watching the illuminated mind, mm-hmm. which is basically a, a, a diagram for the Descartian mind-body split. And we're observing things, we're seeing things, we're not experiencing things, we're basically dormant in the dark. Uh, whereas uh, you go to Alaska Native performance, like you're not dormant, you're not in the dark, you're there moving, and you're part of it, and it's in a circle. It's a very different, you know, even the, the setup uh, of how you perform and where you perform, that it shapes kind of like the way of an interpreting and receiving it. And so in a way, we question everything. But how did you come up with the circle? Or was, the, was that just kind of, it's, okay, this is how we do it here? <laughs> you know, it's, or it's, would you do it any other way? It, gets, it looks at the practicality of how it's produced okay. uh, in its origin. And look, in, in a sense, mining what's already there rather than laying on. So for me, the form, it's like in a sense, the, the form, and that's where we are, I think, now in, in our history uh, of, of the, the species, we're at a point now that we have to question the form. I think a lot of people have a lot of interesting and new ideas, but in a sense we're hamstrung and confined by old ways of thinking, I mean the form of thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, until we deal with that thoroughly, we're not gonna be able to implement new ideas in a coherent, cohesive way. So this is, in a way, it's, it's, it has a radiance. So, so how much, because I, I wanna get to this, this point, um, which is a good one. Um, you know, how much of this insight did you find? Because um, you went on from working in Alaska to to then going on and becoming a specialist in indigenous performance, essentially mm-hmm. by traveling around the world to a number of places. And how much of that was um, kind of ongoing discovery, and how much of it was proving out what you'd observed in in Alaska and gone, okay, there's some commonalities between this. And the lessons that you're talking about now, did those develop over time or was it kind of really apparent at the start? Well, what I learned in Alaska served as like maybe a, a loose methodology or approach. Um, I should mention I never sought work outside. Uh, the, the first time it occurred uh, was um, I was sitting in my, my house in the, I had in the woods there and it was like 30 below and I got a call and it was some guy on the phone with this uh, British sounding accent saying, do you wanna work with the Zulus? And I go, who the hell is this? I thought, you know, someone was like pulling my leg. Okay, I work with Eskimos, so I'm gonna work with the Zulus now. He goes, no, no, it's like, I saw you work in Chicago, so I know you can direct. And I read this article that you wrote and we are developing, because South Africa is coming out of its, you know, it, it being uh, sanctioned uh, by the world because of apartheid. And, he, and, he, and previously, uh, zoos were not allowed to perform because it was thought of potentially seditious. And, and we have no idea how to develop a, a, a Zulu program. And so within, that was like in January. And in May, I was there. I was in Durban. Uh, and another instance was uh, a year later, I, uh, we opened a show with Duma Theater, 
I go to a cast party afterwards and the door opens again. It's like in January. So it's like 40 below. Uh, the door opens and this guy is, is waiting for me. This little short guy with a mono brow and he just bear hugs me. And I go, and my friend Anatoly, who you know is Russian, I go, and these guys talking to me. I go, Anatoly, what's he, what's going on? What's he saying? And he goes, he goes, the performance he saw tonight is the performance of his people in Saha, which is central Siberia. He, and and, and you, he's he's inviting you to work with Saha. So that was in January. In June, I was in central Siberia in Yakutsk, uh, working at the uh, the Saha National Theater. Uh, so it's kind of like I didn't predict it. It's kind of like kind of moves, you know, in its own pace. But what I brought to it was um, the same methods uh, adjusted to each environment. So we created like a ritual warm up in in Saha and one in Zululand as well, uh, and one in Zambia. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of something that. On their own terms, the method was something that served and could be transportable, um, which was very nice. And then I had to get from when I was in, in Saha, I had to get to South Africa because they invited me the second time. And so I, I was trying to figure out a way. So what I did was fly to Moscow and took the train and we was going to take a train to, to Finland and fly down to South Africa. But uh, by chance, totally again by chance, um, the last day I was in Fairbanks before I had left for that summer trip, I had seen a newsletter that was the last day for me to pick my mail out of my mailbox because there, thereafter it would be forwarded to my mom for the rest of the year. Um, and then on in that newsletter, I found stuffed in my bag was an announcement for an international theater conference in Tampere, Finland. And so I faxed them, right? And I go, you know, I'm go- I'll be in Finland if you want. I'll like to attend and whatever if you want. I'll give, do a workshop. And they said, yes. And so I get there and I, I arrive in Tampere and there are people waiting at the railroad station. And I thought my workshop was the next day. And they go, no, it's like right now. They're waiting at, at, the, um, at the library. And there's, I go to the library and there's a hundred people there. Right. And, so, and, and you're I, on. And so and it's like, okay, take these slides, put them in. And then what was happening was there, were, there was this guy in the front and he's actually sleeping and snoring. Right, and so now and then I would clap my hands, and it became like this running joke for this talk. And it's like you know, it's like it was like I'm still trying to like you know catch up with myself, and this guy's sleeping. And then afterwards, you know, like an hour later, uh, he comes up to me and he goes, "I'm sorry, uh, I, I'm sleeping because I go, I'm not going to repeat anything." And he goes, "No, no, no." He goes, uh, "My friend wanted me to see, be- and I drove all the way from Samiland last night, and I was very tired. I wanted to sleep, and I wanted to see you." He goes, "Do you want to work in Zambia?" And so he had worked for the Finnish, uh, I mean, a Finnish volunteer service in Zambia for the last five years, mm. in in doing theater for communities, and so <laughs> that was in that was in uh, like July. No, that was in August. That was in August, and then uh, next year in March, I was in Zambia working. Well, so you'd kind of tap, <laughs> tapped into this rich seam of one thing's leading to another and, and you, your plane tickets and mounting like, up and destinations. Uh, yeah. But mo- all my work has come that way. It was nothing kind of really planned. It's, a, in, it's like meeting people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I, I believe if you're authentic and you're honest, then you attract. Uh, and and you, I don't know, you can't teach that. You just got to be that. I mean, life has to teach that to you or something. Uh, so, so we talked earlier on about the um, 
uh, off mic about the uh, kind of characteristics of a, a, a world travel indigenous uh, you know, uh, um, anthropology, you know, uh, what needs to be on the personality and character trait checklist, if, if there was one, to make you suitable to that kind of kind of work? You know, we talked. One of the things we talked about was generosity of spirit and interest mm. in people. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't not not being judgmental and being fully open. Uh, th- there was a, one of my performers with the zombies. She was interviewed for a magazine article, and they asked her about me. And uh, she was recalling an incident where um, that, um, that 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 something about my not uh, uh, t- talking about bullshit. Like mm-hmm. you know, if she she gave something bu- bullshit, uh, and and she had said this might be bullshit, and, and you may not like it, like in a rehearsal. And I says that depends on what kind of if it's a good bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so and she cited that as like an uh, an example of my being open even to bullshit, because it's like I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, sometimes you may think it's crazy, but it may be bright on the money. And I don't judge anything. Uh, I just kind of look at it as like another you know opportunity, another expression. So I look at everything in, this, in a similar way, and just being—I look at my my images of a, of myself as a big radar dish, uh, and then I just take in everything, and mm-hmm. then I I I I I understand it in my head, but I I try to move beyond my head and understand it in my body, uh, in my 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 soul or my uh, emotions. Uh, and let the head be secondary because mm-hmm. I'm, we're trained to think of it logically um, and rationally and how it fits into categories as a consequence. And what happens is we filter a lot and that filtering actually keeps us from innovating and being imaginative. So I, I try not to filter anything as, as in, in, in just interpret it and just bring it in and then like it, it will settle itself. And that's like uh, a confidence maybe that that's how, a working methodology. I have no idea how it came up. And maybe even a courage because some people are afraid if you go beyond the lines uh, that it would be wrong because we're trained from writing script when we're in second grade, don't go beyond the lines. You know, it's like, you know, I don't use line paper, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's a way of thinking too. And right, right on, and that's certainly something that's um, kind of ties into the themes of you know personal growth and and, and people realizing their 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 potential as to what they and you know learning about themselves, which is you know a lot of folks get stuck you know in what they <clears throat> what they're doing with a certain mindset and and they filter out other possibilities such as you know other curio- things they're curious really curious about other potential jobs uh, whether right. to try something different or, or themselves to, what makes them happy yeah you know it's like you know this is not making me happy so what are you doing there <laughs> yeah. you know okay let's let's talk about how to get out of it you know how to exit <laughs> well and then there's a there's a battle between you know mind and, and and heart and soul and i think that that openness to be able to interpret something and see how it feels at another level that'll tell you whether it's right and wrong and, and, and kind of mm-hmm. you know that that openness i think something that um that unfortunately we need to cultivate because because when we're not trained in in our schools and and, and in in society mm-hmm. often rewarded for innovation not and increasingly not even now with this whole fanatical obsession with testing and right. many of our schools and stuff we're, we're coded 
we're narrativized by a larger culture to serve the needs of a larger culture and to maintain a larger culture. So that means whether it's a cop in the head, literally at the police, or a self-censoring in cop in the head as far as like, how do I succeed? So you, I'll find here at the university certain, certain students who won't do certain things because they feel it's not appropriate for their ambition. It's kind of like they're seeing themselves almost like on a grid of some sort. Uh, and then they have to proceed in this logical step. And what's happening is, you know, they're on their way to being lifeless. Mm-hmm. They'll be 35, 40 years old and go, how did I, I did this because my parents wanted me to do this. And it's not me. Uh, and so you just wasted the half of a life. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you, you have to, it's, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of like how you process. And that's going back to the, the zombies as well as the indigenous groups, you have to question the form. It's all about the form now. It's no longer, it's about content still, but it's really, we're digging deeper beyond content because in a sense we're filled up with content. Everything's kind of repeating itself. It's like a recursive loop now. You know, everything's being appropriated or postmodernism is kind of a symptom of that. So it's no longer about that surface noise of things like swirling around, repeating recursively. Now it's about questioning and interrogating and transforming the form, you know, which is much more difficult and much more deeply rooted and much more contentious uh, uh, for people because it's so like I branded on us. Mm-hmm. So how much just to, to join this up to the, the we started off talking about character traits and, and how much of this was if you've reflected on this how much of this is you as a person really led you into this path of, of traveling the world to understand different cultures performance and you know how it relates to their life and and how much of it is after having had that experience of going around I've gone okay well I think I've really learned a few things what did I what did you you learn after after which one of those is it and what did you learn after after this period of travel I think being awake and alert and accepting mm-hmm. um, Alaska Native people I've worked the Yupik have a, a saying it says accept don't expect so I mean it's not being I accept everything it's just like meaning I'm wishy-washy and I'll go wherever, wherever, whichever way the wind blows it's like I don't expect anything I just accept what's there and what's there given this worldview that everything's there because it needs to be there mm-hmm. then that's fine you know, and, and when in our performances with the zombies, the, uh, an underlying theme is you'll see what you need to see. You know, if you don't see it, that's fine, which is like antithetical to like how you produce theater. You want people to see this plot moment. You want to see them feel intense and kind of orchestrate and manipulate this emotion. It's like, well, we'll present it. And if you happen to see it, fine. If not, then that's fine, too. The, the greatest compliment for the dead white zombie uh, experience for me was we did whole several years ago and this couple came to see it and they enjoyed it. So I invited a second couple. All right. And they enjoyed it. So the four of them wanted to come back and then invited a third couple. So the, with the third, the six of them were at dinner and the third couple, the newbies said, well, what's it about? And they all explained another play or performance and are going it sounds like you all went to a different, different performance point, yeah. and they go that's the point <laughs> which is in a way trying to enliven people getting back to the idea of form that you create your own reality mm-hmm. you know i'm not going to manipulate it and if i empower you in a performance which is a metaphoric microcosm then hopefully you'll take away a deep form awareness of the re- reality i'm seeing what i need to see and that's it. There were times in whole, for instance, where 
uh, it would depend on the on, on the, the event, uh, the evening, a number of the audience members and the energy or whatever. There'd be 30 people looking at one scene. And you were talking like maybe four or five scenes going on simultaneously in this big 35,000 square foot uh, uh, building, former uh, machine shop. And it'd be 35, and the next night there'd be two people there. And then at, t- at times there'd be two people performing in the distance and you'll see them maybe a, a hundred feet away and they're by themselves. They're just performing for themselves. And it's and like, and the thing is, it's like, you, know, you never knew. And the next day it would be like five people there. So in a sense, you saw what you needed to see. Uh, and the actors, it was important for them at first, they're going, well, I'm performing. At first, it was kind of like the reason I, I rehearse is for people to see me. And then they realized it was a great freedom in, in having a performance uh, audience there or not. It's like, who are you really performing for? And so it even questioned that, that whole like, uh, understanding and, and framework and expectation of a performer. Who do I really perform for? And it turned out when they performed for themselves, they actually performed even more intensely. Right. <laughs> With more freedom. <laughs> but if you draw a, a line back to the in- indigenous performances, um, you know, that's not necessarily there as a form of entertainment all, all the time. It serves a number of other pur- purposes, cultural and spiritual. Uh, you know, pe- people are, are going through rituals, etc. Yeah. <clears throat> et, et so the performance has a life and a purpose of its own, or it, it spills out of people. For it's about something greater. I mean, if you pray, are you pr- praying for yourself or are you praying for a god or a spirit? I mean, who are you praying for? Um, it's, it's in a sense who you're performing for. I mean, and in a, in a way, getting back to like life choices, mm-hmm. it's like who are you performing for in your life? I mean, if you have this executive job as a consultant, are you performing for <laughs> yourself? Or are you performing for this this pattern, this coded pattern of what consultants do, or this fabled mythic lifestyle? You know that it was like presented to you in all of those like training books and training seminars and and whatever else and then and then the regalia that you have with the tie and and the lifestyle and the credit cards mm-hmm. and all that stuff and the speak and the scripts of like how you talk to people how you greet them I mean in a way you're totally coded you know what I mean it's like is that you are you performing for you or are you performing for this 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 drama which you have in a sense that's kind of like just pushing you along. Uh, and so I, you can see how I really pull things down uh, into a, a performative like analysis. No, and, and I think you're spot on. Um, you know, in terms of uh, consulting and any, any job as a performance and the expectations on, and, and, and certainly some of our work is literally standing in front of, of people and and trying to make them feel or think or or do something or or to reach consensus or whatever and. But I, I think you're right, and, and whether it's a consulting job or another, where you take on the clothing and the the, the costume and the and the identity of, of, of that job, uh, and then that takes you a certain period of time, and then you think, well, look, I've become hollowed out inside. You know, right. who, who am I really? I'm, and, and I'm not. Um, I, I'm working from the outside in rather than from the inside out in in terms of expressing myself mm-hmm. or understanding. Um, you know, my performance being. Uh, initiated, motivated by an internal expression as opposed to conforming to something. Which, which is really a kind of a, a machine-based diagram. It's, it's like a functional diagram. It's like I'm designing this to be functional part of a larger uh, working machine. 
And that's symptomatic of our age, how technology is dictating our patterns and the form of our existence, that we are basically no, long, no longer following nature as a pattern that we, we relate to, but basically we're following technology. We created it, but we've created, in a sense, we projected into space these, the, how we function uh, and how we move through. Everything's kind of like rigidly and logically uh, uh, and, and progresses in a way that's very machine-like, which, is, of course, is going to hollow out a human being. Uh, it's like it's like in a way I feel like it's like industrial like uh, you know animal husbandry you know it's like uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know slaughtering animals like a production line it's like you know they're no longer animals in a sense um, and that that's you know antithetical to how I look at the world and and for me antithetical to being human right right so there's that element of, of humanity and I think um, there's probably a good time to to um segue through to Dallas, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take you from, I, I just really want to make a comment about <clears throat> you finding culture in Siberia and then coming to Dallas. But, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I just, uh, you know, so, so how, did, how, how did Dallas come about? And, and uh, I, I love being here and I think once you get onto the mm -hmm. surface of, of Dallas, there's an amazing things happening and amazing people, but that may not be the perception out for folks outside of Dallas. And, right. and I think this what's going on here will slowly percolate out to, to others. But so how did you get here and what was your, what were your expectations and thoughts uh, um, before coming and, and um, move us to Dallas? Um, when I was, I had spent 15 years in Alaska. So I felt, and I you know, traveled a lot during that period of time and they were really generous with giving me time off and stuff. And I felt I had done everything I needed to do there. And, uh, and I was starting to repeat myself. I mean, I'd hiked, I skied, snowboarded, you name it, rock climbed, kayaked. I'd done all of that stuff, personal stuff, as well as I basically explored as much as I felt I could and, and gave the Duma Theater over to uh, Alaska Natives, as it should be, because uh, I'm an Italian-American from Cleveland. It's kind of, you know, a weird uh, place to be. Um, so, I, and I wanted, I wanted to come to a city again. I felt the need to be in a city. And I wanted a city that wasn't developed, meaning culturally. Uh, D Dallas is, has a lot of opportunity here. Uh, there's a lot of vibrancy, but it still doesn't know what it is yet. And what what I feel is there's a um, they like on the, the elitist culture that's here and the arts district, et cetera. For example, what they do is they'll hire in these Pisker uh, uh, architects, award-winning art architects, because they think that's what they should do. Um, uh, and they're kind of like looking over their shoulder at what's happening elsewhere, but their money's made in here, in oil or, uh, you know, TI or whatever, um, you know, Ross Perot and whatever, whatever. So they'll do it, but they, they kind of like don't know how, so they take on like the, uh, the, the artifacts of, of, of culture and wealth, and this is how I should be behaving and what I should be wearing and stuff like that. So I, I, I understood that, but as in a larger uh, city sense, it wasn't sure what it wanted to do and what it wanted to be, uh, and, and that was wide open. I like I like places that are kind of have like a wide openness, mm -hmm. and this is this is different than my indigenous work is looking at indigeneity and what's there, and crediting and supporting and basically foregrounding that work 
the culture rather than myself. I serve in a sense. Whereas here, I wanted to bridge the gap from my what I had learned with indigenous cultures and performance and ritual cultures into uh, a city that was basically didn't know what it was and then infuse that and kind of create a company and and, and, I, uh, and explore uh, because I feel it would have been, um, it's more viable to do here. Uh, at that point, and it's still to the extent it's very open, uh, there have been some very generous people who have given us space, et cetera, and I've been able to do basically what I wanted to do. You know, there's some struggle in it because of your all these projects are always um, uh, producing issues. Uh, the project we're working on now is like, you know, I'm, I'm adept and I kind of like revel in talking and working with people. So it kind of makes it easy. It's kind of my way of socializing as well as producing. Uh, and so, and I'm able to do that here. Um, because it doesn't know what it wants and what it is. And so we're, we've made a scene. We have a following, uh, and we do the work we do, and people anticipate us. There's one guy who has a, a fairly large ad agency, and he, he told me, you know, without my soliciting, he goes, you know, he goes, if someone said to me, uh, let's go see theater tonight, and I go, nah. He says, if someone said to me, let's go see Dead White Zombies, I go, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like, and I go, that's, you know, that's an honor, you know what I mean? Because we're theater, but we're not. And you know one, and one thing we're going to do, we're going to give you something that you've never experienced before because we've never experienced it before. And we're along on a trip with you. You know, this is as much, a, you know, as a, as a gamble for you as it is for us, you know. So, so what would you say to, to folks that, are, uh, you know, you've got a following already, but that, that haven't are not aware of dead white zombies and what you might call post-disciplinary performance groups or experimental theater performance art, et cetera, that might have some trepidation or not really know what it's about or whether they'll enjoy it. Um, our biggest, uh, we don't spend a lot on advertising, like social media and some email blast and stuff like that, maybe postcards. Uh, a lot of it's word of mouth and that's how people find out. And in a way, we like it like that. We kind of like, because the world has become so marketed uh, and so consumerized and so many companies, theater companies, they look like they could be selling a corporate, you know, object. Uh, and I don't see the difference. They're using that kind of language. That's their model. Ours is kind of like, we're just doing what we, uh, our, our mission statement is we do what we want to do, how we want to do it, where we want to do it, because we don't know what else to do. <laughs> I mean, that's basically, that's how we guide ourselves. And all of our works are different. Uh, and they're guided by, you know, what we're feeling at that moment and what space we have and, and the personnel that's involved and, and you know, where we are kind of on the currents. Um, we don't do, we do original work uh, that's for that moment. So do you think it's, uh, just before moving on to actually talk about the your current project with um, uh, Holy Bone, but uh, do you think it's easy to do original work here? Because we, we talked before about trying to conform to a, a mental model, uh, you know, in a job role. Um, what about conforming to uh, an artistic role? You know, what what's Broadway theatre or off-Broadway or whatever? You know, is there, does the same thing apply? And then, you know, kind of doing anything that we think of is that that the road really to ultimately to creativity or is it to push forward something that's already been accepted uh, but uh, and and you know we do research and development i mean any scientist any scientifically uh, grounded corporation uh, the government 
a human being, a child. I mean, it's research and development is how you grow. And that's, that's our, that's our mission. That's our kind of our niche. You, you, we don't do uh, reaffirmations and reiterations uh, of previous work, either in form or in content, uh, because they, everything's different. How we created Holy Bone is very different than how other pieces were created. So the form and the methodology of how it's created is shaped to the content, and the content is shaped by the form. So it's it's really kind of a, a more of a holistic. Um, uh, ecology, ecological, or Gaia kind of uh, uh, self-regulating system that we set up that's unique to each performance, which is 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 time and emotion intensive, and not you can see if we were doing if I have to do five shows a year, I can't be inventing the wheel all the time. But if you do one a year, you know, and if you're committed to it, it be you know we're kind of like that the old Japanese craftsmen in the 17th century, you know, you know, it's going to take us this long to make this bowl or this sword, you know, and that's, and it's specific to it and it has us in it. You know, it's not something where it's mass, we're not mass manufactured. Uh, and people feel that, you know, they feel the heartfeltness, they feel the authenticity uh, of what we do. Uh, and, they, and, and that's really important for me. Uh, because and it's counter to everything that you should be doing, uh, as far as like making more money, mm-hmm. you know. And that's it's never been a drive for me. I mean, I need to have money to survive, but I've never been driven by uh, my idea of success being, you know, accumulation of wealth um, into making this into a uh, zombies into a corporate like behemoth. You know, if it wants to fold and become something else, then that's what happens. Uh, longevity in establishment is not, you know, the priority. The, the work is a priority. So it's, it's kind of like a lot of different values that we're putting out there um, that, you know, others would like question, you know, why, why do you do this and how do you do this and why do you take this on? We don't. That's kind of how we work. And what's interesting for me is uh, I've taken friends to, because they give me tickets to various theater companies with my friends there. And, and some of them I can't invite to theater anymore because these are people who are not theater people because mm-hmm. they're bored. Yeah. yeah. They're going, this is, this is like 1980s, you know, and this is like, these are good groups mm-hmm. here in town. It's like, uh, this is like community theater with adults. You know, it's kind of like time has kind of passed that form up, but they, these people who are doing it don't know what else to do. So it's kind of like that guy from the, uh, who has that weird haircut that was cool in 1979, but he's still wearing that same haircut. You know, or that woman who's like 65 and is wearing a haircut style that you know, she wore well when she was 25. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you gotta change with the times. <laughs> you know, and it's not just content. Okay, I'm going to put a gay guy in there mm-hmm. or someone with disabilities or this is, you know, transgender, you know, issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important they, they voice those in content, but it's a questioning of the form as well and how it's presented. So we're talking about the um, – so let's talk about Holy Bone specifically mm-hmm. now. Um, that's a current project you're working on. And, and then let's – you know, what, what sort of influences – off the times, if there are, what, what ingredients or what environmental factors went into the creation, the creative process of coming up with that? Um, I was in, I've been working in China like for my new research project and I was there and I had a day off. Cause usually when I'm there, I don't have any days off. I'm just working every day. So I was reading this book um, by an anthropologist and 
this word stuck out, holy bone. Um, in I forgot the context, but basically it talked about how doctors used uh, uh, holy bone as the as the bone that's behind the woman's women's uh, uterus. And that's the holy bone, and then how historically this holy bone uh, is the last uh, uh, when a body is uh, dissolving in the grave, it's the last one to dissolve, mm. Mm. right? So it's, it has a density, the greatest density. I think it was uh, uh, Schleilen. Uh, I think it was one of his books I was reading, um, and then how in many cultures uh, historically we're talking like early hunter gatherers, how they use this bone as basically a diagram for artwork. So it's kind of something like uh, the female genital bone in support of that, it was the, the fertility rite, and then how that became in terms transfigured into uh, design, uh, and then how fertility, the women, et cetera, were part of this early sense of like spirituality. Uh, and so that kind of got me thinking about our, uh, our current uh, ecological crisis that we're in the midst of right now. Uh, it is a crisis, um, and yet we're, we're all happy here. <laughs> we all got air conditioning, <laughs> uh, and, and we think everything's fine, but it's not. But, uh, and so how can I bring this Gaia or this sense of Mother Earth uh, as progenitor to, um, to the stage without being like, declamatory, oh, you know, this is terrible, and how to bring it into a deeper awareness that when people go through it, they understand this female perspective and this, uh, the germinating uh, uh, perspectives of a, uh, that a female worldview brings, which we're learning on the surface, you know, men are becoming more sensitized, women are becoming more empowered, women are, uh, has a ways to go, but they're, they're in different power positions, et cetera. Uh, in the U.S. in the developing world, but also in in, in developing world in the developed world as well as the de developing world, and so now that's all part of it. But how do we go into the form? How do we go into the form of the subconsciousness and the perceptual area? So in a sense, it's it's a stepped initiation into an understanding of a deeper sense of self, when that deeper sense of self is this holy bone. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, and the holy bone is, if you want to interpret it whatever way you will, it is nonetheless, uh, um, maybe I'll say a female consciousness and, and, and a traveling through it, experiential traveling through it. The, the, uh, the power of immersion and traveling through something is that it makes a psychological, psychophysical impact on your body, which is different than just making an idea. If I'm sitting in the dark, observing, and I'm taking in logically, oh, we all consider that. But if you're doing it, you can combine thought and with feeling and emotional interaction, then you have a profound effect that will haunt people. Uh, and our work, many people mention they'll say months later, they're still thinking about these images that kind of came up or a scene that kind of this comes up in a moment of their day or a dream. And that's the kind of, we want to kind of get to that lower level or that subconscious level uh, of, of uh, perception. And that's what Holy Bone's about, to bring this about. So it's ambitious, but again, we're doing research and development, so hopefully <laughs> uh, it will work, you know, and at least some indicator. Uh, if not, it'll be a hell of a great time, you know. <laughs> So, so when is that? When can people um, can, when can people see that? It's uh, May fourth uh, through the twenty seventh, uh, and it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 
and it's we bring in six people every 10 minutes. So, mm. so we can have a highly individualized uh, understanding of the, the, the project as we move through. And you move through 12 steps or 12 stages of the evolution. And each is another, uh, uh, they're connected, they're interconnected, but it's, uh, each is another revelation or a teaching. So this, you talked about the experiencing it. And I think when I first contacted you, um, I, I said that I'd experienced deep, a form of production DP92. Um, that's how I would describe it. And, and it was a, a, a positive experience in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, if I think about, I'm kind of want to go to this place, which is about kind of 2017 and where we're at and, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, millennials and, and kind of a, a move from, you know, kind of s status and money, you know, it's kind of, oh, look, let's focus on experiences now. But I, I think the experiences that people are focusing on is kind of still a materialistic ex experiences. Mm. I'm going I'm to travel to this place. I'm going to open this bottle of champagne. I'm going to jump out of a plane. Right. Um, you know, whereas the, the experience I think that we've been we're talking about through our time together is, is kind of something a lot more um, deeply felt and, and, and significant and, and, and timeless in, in our makeup as, as human beings. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it sounds like, you know, that that's what you've tried to, to tap into. Is there a need to, you know, given that the, the way that we, um, you know, kind of our attention is so fragmented at the moment and, and you know, we've got lots of narratives going in the, in the news mm -hmm. if you want to kind of buy into this, you know, difficult times and, and terror and, and fear and all these sort of things. You can kind of, yeah. Is that something that you have to cut through for someone in Dallas or a major city in 2017 to allow them to have a true experience of something? Or is it just really you need to just introduce them into the environment and, and, and let the process take care of itself? Um, I think, yeah, the latter, a process taking care of itself. Well, what we present is kind of a uh, secular, non-religious, spiritual uh, journey. All of our works uh, is what we aspire to. If you're ready for it, fine. If not, then at least you're going through it. Um, you've experienced it. We've kind of like, we've touched you in s sensorial ways, whether it's, you know, smell, smoke, lights, walking through corridors or whatever, uh, interactions, uh, not knowing if the person next to you is actually performing or or not. I mean, those things, so a lot of questions are, are kind of like uh, jogging your your perception uh, barriers there. Um, and that's, that's all we can ask for. What we find too is that several people come back because the first time I think they, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an overload or they realize that they didn't appreciate everything uh, and they wanted to see it again. And because it's so many dimensions, going back to the prism that we we're talking about, there's so many dimensions that you can perceive, then they come back to see another perception. Uh, and it will be different because the way we work it is the performers are uh, uh, encouraged to respond to the moment they're in. And the DP-92 is scripted, but within that, there's probably uh, uh, 15, 20% of their menu, I call it. And they can loop into whatever they feel like, or they can improvisationally grow from it. <clears throat> so what's remarkable for me is that I'll, I can't see everything every night. I mean, it's not like I sit down and see my show and from beginning to end. It's like, 
if I'm one place, I'm not another place. And there are like mm -hmm. two other things, three other things going on. And the same will be true with Holy Bone. I can only be in one place of 12. So they're basically, there are 12 simultaneous scenes happening as I'm standing in one place. And so the thing is, um, I'll, I'll get to another space, which I hadn't seen maybe in a few performances, and they'll have totally transformed it. And in a way that's just so beautiful that I would never have perceived or kind of constructed a way of like extrapolate a way of them doing that. And then it grows. So it's not like something that's fixed. It's actually organic even in its performance and it's shaped to the audience. Mm -hmm. We started Holy Bone uh, in earnest in October <clears throat> and we took it to, and this is very different as a process, a methodology of, uh, of working it. <clears throat> we took it into public spaces, unannounced. And so the audience would, would basically is like, they don't know if they're in an audience even. Um, and so as it evolved and reactions told us about, in a way we went into the texture of the city by how people reacted. And that in turn became kind of like the, uh, the, the fuel to develop their characters, which now they carried into the holy bone, the initiation we're doing now. So in a way, this is in its it, in the, the period of time it's marinated, but in a sense, it was co-conceived with the city, with the people that it participated with. I mean, I wrote I wrote uh, scenes which they performed, but as we went on, we left the scenes, and they were just like seeds. And now it's become still you can still trace it to its origin, but now it's become something very different. There are some scenes that were very verbal and very uh, based in word, and now it's all action. It had, there are no words. <laughs> so it's like, in a way, it's like a long performance prod. We've been performing, and, and we've been real and perform, performing for the last like eight months. <laughs> so in a way, we folded one into the other. Um, so, and that, that's completely a different process than, you know, kind of fine-tuning a script and, and, and kind of people doing a little bit of improvisation. Do, do you think if, if you moved this performance elsewhere, would you go back and, and do the, I'm going to call it field work again, mm -hmm. um, to soak up the, the juice of yeah. the city, to, to, to inform the way that... Uh, yeah, we would, for sure. Um, we would learn, we'd have a prototype because of what we learned here. So if we went to Pittsburgh, we would bring that to it because human nature you know, is, is basically human nature wherever you go in the world. Uh, but it would be the particulars uh, that are affecting that area would, be, would shape the interpretation. And then the time too, because we're, we're passing through to another moment mm -hmm. would be different. I mean, la when we started in October, it was before Trump. Now we have Trump. So it's definitely clouded and shaped uh, and evolved with us. So yeah, it would it would move with it, which is how rituals move. Mm -hmm. I mean, rituals if they don't always adjust and evolve, then they die. People think that you know they they're they're stagnant. Uh, you know, early Christian mass or services were very different than what we have like happening at a mega church today, uh, and and you know with microphones and video and everything and Prestonwood or whatever. If they don't evolve, then they pass away, and that and we're always reshaping it. Um, so yeah, I would I would agree with that. So, 
let's we haven't talked at all about um, the your role as an educator, formally and, and informally. Um, but but just you know, there's a number of things that, that you're working on. If you're looking to the future, given where you're at, what's the relationship? Do you see an educator in, at a university as one role, and then the what you're doing with Dead White Zombies is something else and your other collaborations is something else and and what what are your hopes and, and expectations of each of those roles or is it all part of the same it's all all the same uh, I'll I'll bring my research into the classroom which I think students have told me it makes it really vital uh, and serves as an example uh, for what uh, and how they can work as well um, so I'll, you know, whether articles I read or uh, documentation to present and talk about it, or I'll give, um, I'll shape a course. Uh, so the content is coherent to the course, but I also I'll choose content that is also a, a current and running preoccupation. So what it does is I feel the instructor has to be uh, involved and excited about the material. I'll never teach the same course twice in the same way. Um, so if, if, if it's just something, uh, I have a yellowed sheet of notes, you know, giving it over and over again for mm -hmm. the last 20 years, you know, then that's like, that's death. So it's like, it's like, you know, this is what I'm working on now, what my preoccupation is, then I'm going to like include it. And, and so I'm, ex I'm like a student myself. Uh, and I, that, that engages, uh, I think the, uh, the, the students, you know, wholeheartedly. How would you respond to yourself as a student <laughs> if you <laughs> if you were sitting in your younger self in in, in the classroom? And a kind of a related question to say where I'm coming from here is, you know, we talked about overscoring and a, and a preoccupation obsession with 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 scoring everything. Though at universities, that's kind of part of part of the the process and mm -hmm. kind of the need to innovate through trying and failing things. If if people a student really took that to heart and wanted to try something that didn't work, how would you how do you interpret and, and score that or, or come to some sort of conclusion in that in the context of a, a course? Or? Um, I usually and I'll, I'll depends on the course. I, I'll try to assess the student where they start and then where they end. So I don't. It isn't like I have like a standard. They all have to reach a certain artificial standard. So if there's a student who has difficulty with with like uh, expression and grammar, and they've improved or their writing or whatever, then then that's that's part of it. And if they're they're and I'll try to identify and sometimes in a brutally honest way uh, what uh, their failings are as I perceive it. And I'll tell them it's my perception, but the, you know to, to consider it. And that I, I've learned myself, and sometimes I'll do this depending on the course, I'll, ha I'll have a student, the students read an article that I have published in a, a major international journal, and then I'll bring in uh, the notes that the editor gave me. And it's a lot of like cross, this is before they did text edit, right? But crossed out and, you know, just things slashed here and there. And they go, geez. I go, well, this is what, it, you know, I learned more from this than I learned from anything else. You know, uh, and then I'll, uh, depending on the course, uh, if it's a directing course, I'll bring in two reviews. I'll, the first one I show them is like this incredible review. It's a Chicago paper, Chicago Sun-Times. It's like, man, my mother wrote this. It's like it's adulation all over the place. It's love, man. You just feel it, right? And then I'll show them the, the Tribune. And it's scathing. It's like, it's like, it's like whip marks. Mm -hmm. And I go, yikes. And they cringe when I read it. It's the same night. And these guys sat like three seats from each other. 
just to show them like, you know, you have to have the skin of an elephant and the memory of a flea when you do performance because people will love you and people will hate you and I don't care what you do, you know? And, and if you were, uh, if I was a major baseball player, major league baseball player, if I was batting 500, man, I'm doing well. So mm -hmm. if I'm doing 300, that's great, you know? <laughs> I got a few million dollar contract with that. So I look at it that way. So I, I'm not, everyone here, I think nowadays is, wants to please. And like, you know, I want people to like me, but I'm not gonna go out of my way to make you please me and, and say something that just is to please you. I'll say what I need to say, and I feel that that will ultimately be serve you better. And, I, and, and that's just two weeks ago with the class I'm teaching now uh, and reviewing everything that presented, and there, there was a video um, uh, a production class. Um, I said, it's, what, you, what was presented here is everything that the intent of the assignment uh, was addressed. However, there was nothing beyond mediocre. I go, if you wanna be mediocre in your life, that's fine, but you can't be mediocre in this class. If you're mediocre for this, you, you accept mediocre for this, then you'll start to accept it in other parts of your life. Mm -hmm. And it'll seep in. And it's mm -hmm. our own value system. I'm only here for this course, all right? And I can just tell you that. It's up to you, all right? It, it, it's, it's, it's your ethos. If I wash dishes, I'm gonna wash dishes well, you know, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's, it carries over every aspect of your, of your world. The next assignment, superior. It's just, you know, you gotta tell them. And it was hard, they took it hard. Uh, you know, people don't like their work to be said to mediocre or, you know, poor quality. Mm -hmm. um, but then you have to tell them that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, I'm, I'm thinking, trying to draw these lessons back to people's approach to life. And, you know, some of the, the listeners here from different fields, art, business, um, you know, working in the, the community, um, you know, how you, uh, how do you grow, you know, get get to the fundamentals of that. And, and mm. you know, there seems to be, you know, an expectation that we can kind of, you know, just it can happen automatically and it's going to be a painless process. And uh, certainly in my experience, that is not the case. It's never ending. <laughs> and I think the truth is it never is. And I think probably anything yeah. that it, uh, of, of worth happens over time and at some level of sacrifice and and, and um you gotta stay aware you can't be lazy mm -hmm. it's easy as you get older to be lazy it's like oh man i gotta do that again i didn't do this before it's like you know that attentiveness keeps you alert and alive and in the game and that's life i mean that's 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 a full exciting life um you know, your, your body gets older, you know, you go, oh, geez, man, I have to do it. But yeah, you got to, mm -hmm. uh, you have to. And it'll keep you younger and keep you fitter, you know, as you move forward. So is there any other final words or, or anything we didn't cover off that you wanted to, to speak? I think we promised to talk about robots. I might have mentioned it at the start uh -huh. and we didn't we didn't do that because, you know, are machines uh, coming to take over the world or and will they actually uh, be be good performers when no, they do it. I don't think they're going to take over the world. We're becoming machines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in a way, we're taking over ourselves. <laughs> right, right. You know, we, we think it's like some external and that's kind of convenient. No, it's an internal transformation uh, which is happening, which I think is far more uh, nefarious uh, than something uh, uh, attacking us. You know, we're in the sense we're doing it to ourselves. So given all, I mean, I guess my, my final question really is just not continuing that theme is, you know, um, we haven't explicitly talked about 
conscious is maybe, I think we've touched on it or and maybe that's not the right word for it but um, you know as you look to, to the future and what you're working on creatively and, and and your various projects here is I mean you've been doing this for a while now mm-hmm. is it do you, do you actually kind of set uh, broader objectives apart from um, artistic and self-exploration and if the form mm-hmm. and, and other things do you actually think, um, see you know set broader goals in, in terms of you know, society or what you want to achieve and, and have achieved in your life's work and, and, and influence in others? Um, I mean, there are things I want to do before I, I, I leave this plane, um, and that is kind of document and record, uh, articulate things that I've learned. And, and because they were, they were gifted to me in a sense, I feel I have to gift it to someone else. Um, so it's, it's only mine to kind of transform. And so I feel very strongly uh, about that. Um, I, I really, service is really important for me. Um, and, and the legacy I want is like, I serve well. Um, and not necessarily, I think by serving others, you serve yourself. And there's a great satisfaction in that. Uh, I mean, I mean, I need to be comfortable. I need to have food and, and all that, um, you know, and I have, you know, I, toys never really, you know, I enjoy it, but it's kind of like, you know, being, you know, you've been to Africa. I mean, it's, you know, going like Friday night and you're like in Wagadougou and then there's a dance party at this bar in the corner and they're just like having a great time. And you just jump in there and like, you're like home, you know? And it's like, that's beauty, you know? I think I had a birthday once and uh, I was in Nairobi and I was working, I was following a, a, a puppet company that would do uh, work for um, uh, bringing AIDS awareness and the use of condoms. So he went to this slum. It's the largest slum in, in Kenya. And it's all Somalians and Sudanese there. And like, it supposedly doesn't exist, but there are like 300,000 people there. And, uh, and just traveling with this puppet company and the music playing through the wild and crazy, smelly, smoky streets of Nairobi, and then just rocking up to that, uh, the stand and setting up and doing a performance there. It's just like, I was in heaven, <laughs> you know? And I, a lot of people wouldn't think that, but for me, that was just, just, just pure beauty, uh, you know, life, because the spirit of my compatriots was just so beautiful and, and so like uh, unselfish. Um, it just, you know, that's, and then the people were just so open, uh, and the cause was good. Um, so it was all, it was all there that, uh, yeah. So that's maybe, you know, how old my, more my values are. And I think there's something that was said by an Athabascan guy, which uh, I'll, I'll adopt as well as my own. He says, when I die, I want the sky to miss me. And that's, that's where I want it to be. And that's a perfect moment to, <laughs> to, to end our conversation for now. Thanks, Thomas Riccio. It's been a wonderful time together. And for listeners, check out Holy Bone. Yep, thank you. If you're in Dallas, if you're not, then make your way here. And, uh, and <laughs> we'll, also look we'll, online. We'll tape it, yeah. yeah. We'll... <laughs>